1: Hello, everyone. This is Mireille Gino, and you are listening to the New Books in African-American Studies podcast. Joining me today is Leslie Branch, uh, the author of Optimism at All Cost: Black Attitudes, Activism and Advancement in Obama's America, published by the University of Massachusetts Press. Dr. Branch is a racial policy scholar, Fulbright specialist, senior uh, senior fellow at the Du Bois Bunchy Center for Public Policy, and associate dean for the School of Business at Metropolitan College of New York. Uh, She's also an, an adjunct assistant professor in the Urban Studies Department at Queens College and the Political Science and Human Rights Department at Marymount Manhattan College. She teaches a variety of courses, including American Government, Introduction to Sociology, Race, Ethnicity, and Immigration, and Urban Poverty and Affluence. Dr. Branch, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Great. Well, I wonder if you'd begin by telling us a bit about yourself.
0: Well, I mean... that introduction that you gave is, is uh, you know, just so spot on. Uh, but I guess what I could share with you is how I came to uh, the work that I now do. Um, I was in, inspired to become a... Uh, a PhD in public and urban policy uh, because when I was working in a law firm back in the mid-90s, the firm had taken on a racial discrimination case uh, pro bono. And the firm did win the case, um, but I was very disturbed to learn that in the mid-90s, things like nooses and swastikas and whites-only signs were being put up in the place of um, uh, Black plaintiffs. And so... I was, again, happy that we did win the case, but um, it was just, it was an individual um, uh, win. And so I was looking to do something more broad. So I was going to, you know, initially go to law school and, and become a civil rights attorney. But when I learned that Um, Through law, civil rights was just a very individual or incremental uh, step toward justice. I figured public policy would be the uh, better way to go, um, because in that way you could enact sweeping um, policy changes that address, uh, you know, issues of um, discrimination.
1: Okay. Well that's a that's a really uh, fantastic segue into our uh discussion of uh the book Optimism at All Costs. Um the book uh takes up among other uh among other issues uh, this, uh this move from uh sort of an individualist uh mindset to a collectivist mindset or rather uh what you see as the the, the opposite shift uh from the civil right. rights era uh to the modern era. Um the, the introduction, uh, which is titled the Paradoxal, paradoxical, excuse me, ebullience problem um, centers around this notion of paradoxical ebullience. And I wonder if you can explain this concept and where uh, where it originates.
0: So the concept um, I, I sort of coined the term because I was looking for something, uh, I guess, catchy to describe the phenomenon um, and, and what the problem is with paradoxical ebullience is that um, people are told, particularly minorities and, and black folks, are told um, that they should be happy and that there is no need for collective action um, in order to make socioeconomic gains uh, because law has enacted a complete and thorough uh, equalization, if you will. And so all they have to do is roll up their sleeves, work hard, stop complaining, and they will have, uh, the, you know, the, the fruits of the American dream, so to speak. Um, and when I was, you know, writing, uh, my dissertation, or at least looking for a topic, uh, I thought it strange. It was at the beginning of, um, Obama's presidency. He had just got elected. And the um, Pew Charitable Trust came out with a uh, with a report that said Blacks are optimistic about their progress and prospects. Um, and they had been more optimistic at that time that, than they had been in the last 25 years. And I was like, well, that's interesting because nobody told my paycheck that wonderful news uh, about you know, the progress and the prospects that we had made. And so I began to get curious about racial attitudes and how they impact uh, people's socioeconomic outcomes. And so I ultimately ended up doing a discourse and a rhetorical analysis of, um, of of political actors in the, you know, in the 1960s during the civil rights, the black power uh, movements, and the alleged post-racial movements to see how their narratives encouraged marginalized people to uh, make socioeconomic uh, gains or to gain socioeconomic parity. And I found a very interesting um, thing in the uh, Black Power and the Civil Rights era, uh, the political leaders or the, um, the, the social activists of those days Uh, really told marginalized people to uh, not be optimistic, um, but not be pessimistic, but to be realistic. And that was particularly in one of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's speeches. And what he suggested was that when you're optimistic uh, or overly optimistic, you stop being activist. And when you're pessimistic, you also um, are not activists. But when you are realistic, you pay attention to the changes that have been made, the gains that you have made, but you can, you realize that you're not there yet. You've not arrived yet. And so you still need to, um, you know, be activist. Uh, in terms of activism, he spoke about individual activism. Uh, yes, people needed to do the things uh, such as, you know, Uh, get education, go to work, be respectable individuals. But it was through the collective effort of the group um, that ultimately the individual is able to prevail. Um, and then, when we look at um, issues in the alleged post-racial era, we see the um, we see black elites telling um, blacks uh, to you know there's no need for collective action; just work hard um, and and get your education, and and things will happen for you. Well, during that time, um, it it had been seen that uh, blacks had lost much ground, and while the ground that they lost wasn't, uh, was, was handed to Obama from a horrible economy that he, um, you know, rescued America from, it was just his rhetoric that, um, you know, his rhetoric to people of color, particularly black folks, um, that, you know, uh, you're the reason in some instances for, um, the disparities that you're experiencing. And what I thought interesting in my analysis as well is I compared two um, subaltern groups, um, black, black people, uh, black young men in particular, and uh, white women. And when he would speak to white women, notably in his speech to uh, the graduating class uh, at Barnard, he told them it was okay to hold the system accountable and to complain and, you know, uh, be activist. But to black men at Morehouse and to other uh, black groups who hosted him, uh, notably the NAACP, he told them um, that you can't complain. Uh, Nobody cares about what it is that you've gone through. And so it just this whole notion of paradoxical ebullience um, is a call. To marginalize people, that your attitudes have to reflect what your reality is, because ultimately, if it doesn't, policymakers don't pay attention to what your challenges are. Because if you are testifying that everything is good and wonderful, they're going to say, "Okay, we we you know we don't need to focus on um, what the issues that are concerning uh, these groups," even though. The socioeconomic data clearly um, portrayed a picture that, among disparate uh, groups, blacks were um, uh, the most disparate.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and and so um, and thank you for that because that 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 actually kind of uh, takes us through really the first um, few chapters of the of the book, um, uh, where uh, your central argument. Um, is that elites help to maintain the status quo of black uh, socioeconomic marginalization um whether by promulgating um post racial theories of inequality which is actually the 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 title of your first chapter and and um and these theories you know place the blame for uh black socioeconomic uh, disadvantage on their own uh indolence and, and lack of personal responsibility, etc. Um, so that's so it's very interesting um, a very interesting argument that black elites sort of consolidate um, um, the, the power structure um, through adoptions of this discourse. in your in your third chapter, you talk uh, again about about civil rights leaders um discouraging this extreme optimism and viewing it as an impediment to progress and you mentioned um uh, dr king um and I wonder if this idea of supporting abuses of of power if you could if you could elaborate that uh, elaborate on that a bit more. I'm sorry. Could you repeat that? Sure. Yeah. So, and and sorry, it was it was not a it was not a well well asked question. Um, the in your third chapter, which is titled "Boolean's and Act and Action in Black Discourse," uh, you talk about black elites exerting uh, control over the public narrative in ways that contradict uh, the socioeconomic realities and support um, supporting abuses of power, which is a bit uh, which is sort of. What you just um, what you just said, and I just wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. Um, again, this the the specifically the the public narrative, right? The way um, elite interventions in the public narrative uh, help to, to consolidate the uh, existing hierarchies.
0: So sure. Um, and this, I would suggest mainly happened, um, in, in the post, uh, in the alleged post-racial era. Um, and part of that chapter, uh, I believe I, um, include or utilize, uh, or leverage Andra Gillespie's Who's Black Politics. And, um, unfortunately, um, Black politicians, depending on the um, the stripe from which they hail, uh, tend to believe that they cannot reach um, the highest elected uh, offices without the votes of white people, right? And so, um, in that chapter, I talk about some of the um, some of the politicians in that regard. One of them, I think, is. Um, um, I, I can't remember if Patrick Duvall is one, but certainly, uh, 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 yeah, Deval, President, Patrick, Obama, yeah.
1: yeah,
0: right. Uh, President Obama is one, um, <clears throat> and so what essentially ends up happening: we have uh, elected officials who are clearly aware, um, to my mind, what the socioeconomic status is of marginalized blacks. But because they believe that they cannot win elected official, uh, elected office without um, alienating um, white uh, voters who alleged, who who would uh, not vote for them if they did because they might be seen as radical, um, they cannot articulate. Uh, they can they're they're held hostage uh, by the vote and and will not articulate in um, uh, in a. In a forceful or in a direct way, um, the disadvantage that, um, uh, black people, uh, are in. And, and we've seen it with, um, you know, uh, the former president where he even, um, equated, um, Wall Street and Washington, uh, irresponsibility with the irresponsibility of, um, you know, black folks. And, I believe in my uh, I I don't recall which chapter, but I know that I say that it wasn't black folks that nearly capsized the economy to, you know, almost another depression. And so this constant um, chiding of people who are um, doing what the narrative says do. We are getting college degrees. We are, um, you know, being responsible citizens. Um, but yet we are constantly, uh, painted with the brush of, uh, irresponsibility. And, and what, what is ironic about that, um, is while elites, uh, you know, preach individualism, um, and personal responsibility, uh, many of them get where they are through collective action, right? Um, You know, in terms of uh, uh, political action committees, other uh, committees that exist um, that may not, um, you know, be public knowledge, but that's how they push through their agendas. Mm -hmm. And they they create this narrative. And because um, people look at elected officials as as folks who they can, um, uh, I guess, for lack of a better word, trust. Um, they try to emulate what it is that the um the elected officials tell them to do
1: right so so a couple of things that are yeah that are really interesting there is to the the uh, the real measurable gains um uh of of black individualist action are often um Sort of minimized uh, or or ignored by this elite um, discourse, which, as you say, um, continues to sort of hammer home a certain um, a certain perspective, um, and. Th- what I thought was interesting uh, in your fourth chapter, uh, titled "Social Knowledge and Black Progress," and you put you put uh, progress uh, within scare in in the title um is that collective action is uh, not just seen now as as um, Ineffective, but in fact, as an expression of degeneracy, right? Um, and it's no longer uh, even supported by um, traditional proponents, including the the black church. And I wanted to, I, I, I'd like you to to um, say more about that. And also, uh, one of the 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 most um, uh, interesting quotes uh, in that chapter is that black optimism um, has become an instrument of white oppression, end quote. Um, So yeah, so if you would uh, sort of talk about about both of those things, that's great.
0: What happens is, uh, because the narrative about who we are and what our history has been, has been co-opted, and uh, essentially turned against us, um, and the frames through which uh through, through which people are supposed to uh be good citizens if you will and um um you know be imbued with uh american values has been is not one of um collective action right and so part of what um i guess america's ethos or credo is um is individualism mm-hmm. right um we you know, we preach individualism. Um, the way you get ahead is by, you know, um, just finding the opportunity and seizing it. Um, and if you don't do that, then you are, uh, if whatever it is that you, um, happens to you is, is your own fault because you didn't avail yourselves of the opportunities that this great nation has, um, has provided you with, Um, but that's only telling half the story, Mm -hmm. right? So yes, there are opportunities, but why is it when we have those opportunities, why is it that someone who is a person of color who is highly educated um, is out-earned by someone who is a high school dropout and is white, Right. Something's wrong with that narrative because we have done what the narrative has said. um, And then somehow if we are not achieving the goods on the other side, then the fault lies with us, not with the system that is systematic in its oppression of people of color. Right. So to tell only half the story um, as as. My former bishop, uh, well, my current bishop says, a half-truth is a whole lie, (laughs) right? And so the only way we can get beyond this is by telling the whole truth, right? Yes, we definitely uh, need to act in ways that are um, individually responsible, um, but... We also need to speak to this notion that we have a system that consistently oppresses people of color, particularly blacks, and um, takes away the opportunity or consistently is moving the line in the sand. So whenever we meet whatever the criteria is, they move the line in the sand and somehow um, it becomes our fault and we cannot blame a system
1: um, because we have been given the opportunity, mm-hmm. and so that's 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 very interesting. Among other reasons, uh, that it, it sort of intersects with uh, some of the discussion around things like respectability politics as well, um, which you do in part address in your in your book, and and it actually uh, prompts me to, to to circle back somewhat uh, because. Earlier um, in in the book, you sort of talk about some of these cleavages within uh, within uh, the the Black American population, including that of uh, immigrant um, immigrant Blacks, and um, and the way uh, uh, and, and please definitely correct me if I'm mischaracterizing um, uh, your argument around this, but that that immigrant Blacks. Um, because of the, their sort of adoption of this individualist, uh, ethos, um, in a certain, in a certain, despite the salience of, of, of race as a, as a, as a, uh, a determinant of, of, of outcomes, um, or, you know, the, um, the in, they, in a way are, are sort of even more, um, part of the problem than, um, um than, than Native-born African- Americans. am I understanding that? Well, yes, absolutely. And, and what, t- to me
0: is very interesting about that also is where um, and not, not to make generalizations, but uh, just, you know, thinking uh, about this, where most of these immigrant blacks come from. Um, they might be impoverished, war-torn places. Um, And where they were, they were very much collective, I would suggest, Mm -hmm. right? So when you think about um, the African immigrant who comes, the West African immigrant who comes to America, um, why are they coming to America? They're coming so they can have a better life. Uh, and typically where they come from, it's very collective, um, large extended families. Uh, and, and so for them to be uh so invested in uh being endowed with the 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 blessing of those who create this dominant narrative um, to be embodied of American values of individualism, kind of, it's paradoxical in itself, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times the way you got to America from um, your more than likely, um, I guess uh, impoverished maybe, um, people probably acted collectively Right, And so you come here, you work, and what do you do with your money? You send it back home to the right. collective. Right. And so it, it it's it, it is an interesting phenomenon, but I think um, once they engage with the system and see that uh, they are only valued uh, rhetorically, right. but it, you know, they they quickly have a change of heart, I believe. Uh, And so where, where there is, and I believe in that particular chapter, um, and, and that's from, uh, Dr. Christina Greer's, um, book, um, uh, where, when, when these, um, when these African immigrants or these immigrants who are of African descent come and they see that it's just rhetoric that the dominant narrative is, um, you know, uh, filling their head with, but the reality is is you are no better off than um the native-born black. They then see the need to form um uh linkages with black people, regardless of what their ethnicity is,
1: um, to move ahead. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Um so so at the um in your fifth uh, your fifth and final chapter uh sort of talk about um there there are a couple of things that I that I'd love for you to to unpack in that chapter one of which is is about the the sort of potential or promise that you that you see in movements like black lives matter and i wonder if you would um tell our our listeners um what the value of movements like that is
0: Part of the, the value of um, Black Lives Matters is that there is no, and I don't want to misspeak, but there is no central figure um, of the movement, right? And there, there is uh, an acceptance of all, um, of, of all levels of Blackness, if you will, right? So when I think about um, the movement of the 1960s, and Malcolm X said it best, Um, when, uh, he and, and Martin Luther King, um, I believe at one point met up, um, you know, let's put religion aside, uh, because, you know, he was Muslim, um, Dr. King Christian and, you know, even within, uh, those two dominant religions, you probably had different streams or sects, if you will. Of um, those major religions, and so rather than focusing on the differences within the constituencies, we have to, you know, focus on, um, you know, the fact that the thing that defines us and that marginalizes us, and I believe this was Stokely Carmichael, is that you know we're we're wrapped in black skin. So it doesn't matter if you're a black elite, if you are uh, a black non-elite, if you are uh, black educated, um, the dominant narrative is going to paint you uh, a certain way. And rather than focusing on the differences, we need to um, form a collective and address Our issues, right? And so what I like about um, what Black Lives Matter has done, while it may have started as um, a racial issue, um, it has morphed into uh, a socioeconomic issue. Mm -hmm. Um, They now focus on uh, economic equality. I would suggest um, that Black Lives Matter may not be an outgrowth of Occupy Wall Street, but uh, some of the narratives or some of the themes that were um, very prevalent in Occupy Wall Street are now being addressed by, um, by Black Lives Matters, and so you have a coming together of different um, uh, Black social activist groups under a you know a hashtag, if you will, um, that Black Lives Matter. And and I believe Black Lives Matter uh, got its start because it, it seemed like every week, um, ironically, under the leadership of a black president, that a black body was um, being slaughtered, and and um, you know, and so the the movement gained traction. It became a national movement. Um, I, I would even suggest um, the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, has inspired the the women's movement that we saw um, as well a couple of years ago when um, I think the day after uh, uh, Trump's inauguration.
1: Right. After, sure. yeah. Um, yeah, no, and I, I um, definitely uh, think that that's uh, that's the case. Um, uh, you also sort of uh, take up uh, Sandy Darity and Derek Hamilton's. Um, uh, baby baby bond uh which i thought was really interesting baby bond policy as an example of a way forward right a universal um uh a race conscious universal policy um and i wonder if you would uh, sort of claim to to folks what that is and and why you see it um why you why you sort of favor this as a as a way forward
0: well so my whole um well part of what i try to express in this book is that um you know, black people are racially, uh, socioeconomically disparate. Um, The disparity in their economic status intersects with the fact that they are black. And so since um, affirmative action is not um, feasible or palatable to the powers that be, because that has even become racialized, um, something that is more universal in nature uh, might be acceptable. And I believe the um, the baby bonds, as well as uh, uh, Sandy Darity and Derek's Hamil- Derek Hamilton's federal job guarantees, is gaining traction, right? And so just to give you some um, some history, uh, Ira Katz-Nelson wrote a book uh, entitled When Affirmative Action Was White?, And that just essentially speaks to the policies that benefited white people only um, and excluded black people and were um, social policies that helped uh, people buy homes. I guess, I think social security may have been uh, one based on the type of job that you had and and other policies that were created by the government uh, to benefit White people, and essentially, I would suggest to help create a um, a white middle class in some instances, right? And so, because uh, I guess in the 1960s, after the Civil Rights um, Act and the Voting Rights Act, um, a lot of policies were put in place to benefit black people, and it wasn't something that was mandated by government, and it wasn't a handout. this notion of affirmative action became racialized, and because it was something that was benefiting uh, Black people, it became uh, not palatable, even though white women are the biggest beneficiaries of affirmative action policies. That notwithstanding, um, Darity and Hamilton propose baby bonds and federal job guarantees, and uh, with regard to baby bonds, it is an an endowment at birth for every child in America, so it's not something that's um, just for um, racial minorities. It's every child born in America, uh, and they would be endowed with a uh, bond that um, they would have access to. I, I believe, at the age of eighteen, that they would only be able to spend on a wealth. Uh, appreciating um, assets. So like a college education, a home, starting a business, but here's the beauty of Darity and uh, Hamilton's baby bond proposal. Again, it's every child born in America, but it's based on uh, your socioeconomic status, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're born into um, a family that is part of the 1%, um, your child will get something, but it wouldn't, it would be based on the, the wealth of that family. Um, and if you are born into a family that is asset poor, that child's bond would be endowed at a higher amount um, because that family would need it. Um, and, and so it's, it's targeted in that everybody gets it but it is targeted to the most asset poor folks. And um, this way, um, you know, uh, the the most asset poor children would have uh, some sort of seed to start their lives with, right? So children who are born um, uh, in in poverty, uh, and this is black and or white children um, would have an, an asset that would have accumulated over the 18 years, but they could only spend it on something that would further their um, socioeconomic status. And, and you know, uh, the children of the 1% wouldn't necessarily need it, but we're not excluding them. They would
1: have something um, as well. So that's very interesting and, and um in your in your book, you talk about this um as both um a policy that focuses on intent and outcome so it's aspiring to level the playing field but taking um uh concrete steps uh concrete steps to do so um so in your uh, in the epilogue, um, which is titled or rather subtitled "The The Role of Elite Discourse in the Trump Era and Beyond," uh, that takes us to uh, to present day, uh, you begin by um, listing sort of a number of uh, individual discursive actions that have taken place early in the Trump um, in the Trump era. Um, and, um, and some of them, I mean, not some of them, all of them been sort of these notorious, uh, sort of media events, um, uh, in many ways. Um, uh, but you, you come to the conclusion that the conceptual foundation and, and I'm quoting here the quote, the, the conceptual foundation necessary for collective action is increasingly solid. And, um, and I wonder if you would sort of, uh, again, given, given, you know, what we've discussed, uh, today and, um, and the foregoing chapters in the book sort of explain uh, how you arrive at this conclusion.
0: So, I mean, in, in terms of, um, the, the solidarity now of, uh, collective action, it's, it's almost a given, if you will, right? Um, I believe in one of my earlier chapters when I discuss um, electoral politics, and I talk about Michael Dawson. It's it's almost um, a natural that if you're, if the if the political party that you are affiliated with is not um, in power. Then you're going to be unsatisfied. Uh, you're gonna you're gonna assess that the president is doing a horrible job. Um, and and so what is interesting about it is that if you look at what the unemployment number is, and I think at last check it was three point something percent. Um, and and if you look also at the stats for uh, black unemployment um, according to the um, the stats they're i think the lowest that they've ever been since stats have been um, uh recorded you would think that um you know black people would be dancing in the streets Mm -hmm. um but we're not Mm -hmm. and so i think part of it is owed to that phenomena that um when a Democrat, and, and Blacks overwhelmingly are uh, registered uh, right. Democrats. I, if I mentioned that in uh, one of my earlier chapters. And so it's, it's you know, it's there's that phenomenon. Um, but what I would suggest also is the collective action phenomena is very strong just because of the onslaught of uh, rhetorical, discursive, um, attacks by this president against, you know, um, big black people, <laughs> right? Um, he has gone after the NFL, and I don't know what the ratio of black to white players are, um, but he certainly is um, going after the black players who have decided to, um, you know, kneel during the anthem out of principle. Um, you know, there he he has gone recently after LeBron James, um, who has done a wonderful thing in opening up the new school that he has for at-risk, um, I want to say, third and fourth graders in Akron, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and just any number of other um, black people he has just gone after, um, without, to my mind. Just cause and in in watching CNN yesterday uh, brother Cornell West was on and uh, brother Paris Denard and Paris Denard's defense of why um, President Trump is so harsh toward um, black people uh, or people in general um, is because they say negative things about him and so he in turn um, re- replies in kind um, Cornel West's uh, point was very interesting to to Paris Denard. Look, uh, if Trump went after you, um, Cornel West said, I would defend you against Trump, uh, even though the, the two of them are at opposing ends of the um, political and ideological spectrum. And he said he would defend him because he is human, mm-hmm. right? And no human being deserves to be uh, treated in such an inhumane um way and words i would suggest to you um in some ways leave deeper wounds than uh physical um uh, uh hits if you will because you can always replay in your mind the thing that somebody said and then it re uh dredges it dredges up you know emotions and things like that and so the 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 power of words, um, should not be understated. Um, and, and I just really, um, think that the, the black community is now, uh, coalescing, um, because they understand the damage that rhetoric, um, plays. If they don't frame their own narrative, um, somebody else will. And since, uh, arriving in this country, you know, Hundreds of years ago, um, centuries ago, people have defined, have been uh, using rhetoric uh, and discourse to, do, to frame who we are. And we see that that narrative has followed us down through the years, so much so that even when we do play by the rules, we are still um, seen as, um, you know, what we were described as, um, you know, centuries
1: ago. Right. Yeah. And so the, uh, well, I, I definitely uh, appreciate you, uh, sort of summarizing both the, um, some of, some of what you take up in the epilogue, uh, in that way. Um, and that really in, in what you just stated in many ways is, is really, um, at the core of, of the book. Uh, we have been, uh, discussing folks, uh, the book optimism at all costs, black attitudes, activism, and advancement in Obama's America by Dr. Uh, Lesie B. Branch and Dr. Branch, what, uh, are you currently working on?
0: Well, currently, uh, or just recently I've become a, um, a scholar with um, Scholar Strategy Network. And so I will be uh, giving a talk with regard to um, the election and finances um, this September. I'm scheduled to be at uh, the Association of Black Sociologists uh, conference this week, uh, and I'll be presenting there. Um, I was recently quoted, um, by the Center for Public Integrity, uh, in an article that looks at, um, why we don't have any, uh, black Koch brothers, uh, in terms of black political contributions, mm-hmm. um, and just looking to, you know, do more, uh, promoting of my book, trying to, uh, get some book, uh, speaking tours going and, um settling into my role as a associate dean uh, for the School of Business at uh, Metropolitan College of New York. Um, I'll be, um, I've, I've started a social justice initiative here at uh, Metropolitan College of New York, and we're going to be having um, a panel discussion entitled The Racial Wealth Gap, A Dialogue and Solutions, where our panelists will be Dr. Derek Hamilton, and um, New York State Senator uh, James Sanders Jr. Uh, because we want to definitely have a dialogue about the racial wealth gap, um, but we want to also figure out how we can um, come up with some solutions, some ways that uh, people who can, who who are uh, racially and and socioeconomically disparate, um, you know methods that they can use to try to dig themselves out of um socioeconomic uh disparity and uh here at mcmy um our student body is uh overwhelmingly um uh people of color we are um majority uh, our student body is majority female um and we, you know, most of us are uh, of African descent, the, the student body. So I really think bringing this kind of programming to them uh, to, you know, talk about the, the, uh, the problem, but try to come up with some solutions um, is key.
1: Great. Well, um, that sounds like a very that's a very full slate, and um, with a with a new with a new role and uh, a lot of different initiatives, and we certainly hope that um, uh, this chat that we've had uh, gets the word out about um, about the the book. And so, I thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate you having me on. Thank
0: you so very much.